Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. All right, and today on the podcast, I have Steve Shirk on once again as a guest. So if you guys listened to the last episode I did with Steve, we talked a lot about summer strategy and the scouting you can do in the summer, different trail camera techniques, how to maybe think ahead and start to take some of the bucks you're identifying in the summer and think about what they might be doing in the fall range, how to start taking advantage of some of those things. And in today's episode, we're going to start to transition more into actual fall hunting how you take that info from the summer but then also even beyond that fall hunting strategies in general uh, scrapes bucks core areas and how they might shift in the pre-rut different tendencies based on either weather patterns or moon phases and uh, just dive into a whole bunch of stuff kind of in that ballpark before we get started i have a quick message about the spartan forge app which you can get a 20 percent discount on by using the code diy the app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. And with that, let's dive back into the episode. Thanks again, Steve, for jumping on. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I'm excited to, to have another chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one thing I kind of wanted to start off with that we didn't get to in the last episode was the story of the buck that you killed last year. I'm kind of, you know, interested to see yep. all of the historical info you'd put together that kind of led up to your actual hunt, whether or not it was just one hunt or several hunts that ultimately culminated in uh, you killing that nice buck. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I only had, you know, a, a season prior of just a little bit of history with that deer. Um, never really had uh any camera intel on them or sightings except for the rut so i was a little unsure you know kind of where his core area was and you know just what he was doing in general and uh but i there was a there was an area about a mile from where i was getting him getting pictures of him which would be in 2020 um and i i had a feeling that that's where kind of his core area was um it's it's a spot that just one of those areas, you know, in the big woods, it always seems to hold a good buck. And, you know, you kind of just have that. It falls like into generations. One buck dies, and then, you know, another bigger deer will take over. It's, you know, somewhat of a remote area. So 
I put some cameras in there last spring, and um, sure enough, I, I was getting pictures of that deer, you know, right in, probably about right now, this time of year, late May, early June, and uh, just kind of random off and on, though, but it was, you know, it was something I was really excited about because it was a deer that I was really interested in, and it was just good to start to be able to connect some dots with them. So then, uh, you know, I had a lot of intel from them basically right till it's probably sometime in September, early October, and then uh, he sort of disappeared except I was getting him just on one camera close to where I figured he was betting. Um, but something, I guess, before I get too far ahead, like I think the biggest key I had was having, once again, a lot of cameras in that area and not giving up on a deer going into like that that late summer, early fall shift where it seems like a lot of, you know, people, they, they quit getting pictures of deer and they kind of think that, you know, they vanished, they've moved off miles away and it wasn't the case with this buck at all. It was just he really shrunk up his uh, his core area once the you know early fall came. So um, I I managed to pretty much stay on him you know all even through the early part of archery season. But I didn't hunt him until the rut. Um, but uh, he uh, I would say about mid October uh, he really started to pop up on a lot of different cameras. Then there was kind of like a phase where you know, he, like I said before, he was bouncing around a little bit throughout the summer and early fall, hardly moving at all. And then once we got closer to the rut, he seemed to be working scrapes all throughout his core area and even kind of ranging out of that. And, uh, you know, kind of the biggest key for me was just staying on him, you know, from summer uh, right through the fall. And uh, I found there was one particular mock scrape that I had made that was getting a ton of doe activity. And he uh, started he started hitting that scrape uh, late October, and uh, it's a, a scrape he had never hit at all for me um, until late October. And then, but I would say, because I killed him on November 6th, probably from late October to November 6th, he had probably hit that scrape seven or eight times. And in the past roughly week of when I shot him, he was there three or four times in the daylight. And, and the biggest key, though, was was the does because the does were hitting that scrape every day, and it was just a matter of time, you know, for me to just put time into that spot, and you know, because he just kept checking to see when one of those does was going to first come in heat. So, kind of like a a big story wrapped into a, a smaller version, you know, because I don't want to. I could talk about it for hours, but if you want to, you know, pick my brain about it a little bit more, go ahead. Yeah. So I guess. I'm assuming in this area you don't have enough cell service to run cell cameras. So are you just running a yep. just a normal trail camera that was kind of that on that primary scrape that the does were using? Yep, exactly. Uh, you can't run any cell cameras in that area. Probably 90% of the area that I hunt, and which is a big area though, um, you know, is you're not going to be able to. A lot of times you can get just maybe enough cell signal to send a text or something to someone, but most cell cameras that i've ran you got to have pretty good signals for them to work you know work right so i i don't you know i love cell cameras but it's just just one of those things i don't get to use them as much as i'd like to and so then that being the case one thing i would be nervous about in that scenario is mm -hmm. 
you want to try and get the freshest info you can so that you know you're not setting up before that buck starts daylighting in that area. Yep. And you're getting your scent in there. But at the same time, to get that intel, you got to go in there and get your scent in the area to check the card. So yep. how are you and playing that game? Well, here's where it, you know, it kind of worked out for me was that wasn't the deer that I had hoped to kill, although I'm really happy I got it. But I was hunting an even bigger buck in a different area all throughout the early season and uh, right up until late October, early November. Then I, I gave up on that bigger deer because I just didn't have the confidence of hunting that particular buck in the rut, just the way I felt he was going to range. And uh, hunting one certain deer in the rut, in my opinion, you know, can be really tough, especially where I'm from. So I a lot of this intel, though, um, although I was getting pictures on cameras uh, of this buck, like I said, the one that I shot, um, even as I was hunting the other deer, but they were all at night, like far away from where I feel that, you know, I was going to disturb his daytime movements. I think we talked about that a little bit before on the episode prior where I'll have cameras in certain areas more or less to monitor a buck uh, mainly you're getting nighttime pictures though, but just keep tabs on them. And that's the situation with the buck that I killed. I was able to keep tabs on them by, uh, you know, focusing more around, uh, some of these nighttime areas that he was checking out. But I, I never even got in his core area, uh, near any bedding. Um, actually, even when I killed him, it wasn't super close to his main bedding area. And how I, uh, how I know that he, where I, kind of learned where he was betting it was too late but after i killed him um i checked a couple cameras that i hadn't checked for a couple months and that deer uh was daylighting a lot in one small area probably about seven or eight hundred yards from where i did kill him which that told me though you know throughout the early fall right up until late october you could basically see that he was hanging on a certain ridge and you know and some thick cover but he was daylighting that particular camera a lot so that's when i knew that that particular spot i was close to his bedding area so um but uh it's just one of those things really uh you know having a lot of cameras in that area but then the does are what really helped me out i had those does conditioned to a mock scrape i had made like i said probably about this time of year or so and uh if it wasn't for those does he wouldn't have kept coming back to that scrape i don't think Okay, so tell me about this mock scrape a little bit. I've played around with them a little bit. Was this yep. some? Is this a place where you wanted this? You wanted to make this the destination, but there was no pre-existing scrape, or was there a scrape there that you just you know expanded upon? Nope, there was no scrape there at all. Um, and it was a spot where I had kind of planned it could possibly be a rut spot. I I had five or six scrapes, mock scrapes set up with cameras in this area where I you know, kind of prepared for the rut. And what I do is I I try to learn what the does are doing in a certain area. And even though, you know, I'm, I'm not really hunting those spots until the rut, I like to monitor those spots and get, get those does conditioned to the scrapes as well. Even, like I said, right now can be a good time because um, once we get closer to the rut, you know, that's kind of my biggest key is focus on does, especially for the fact that we don't have, you know, great deer density here. Um, you find five or six adult does hanging in a certain area, and you really found something. So um, that's that was the biggest key for me was 
being able to uh, create those scrapes and that particular scrape um, was, like I said, totally intended to condition does because I knew I knew kind of where the does preferred to hang in this area and where the bucks preferred to hang. There was there was a lot of separation until the rut, so uh, it was just the spot. Once I got closer to the rut, I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to check and see what the activity's like near this doe bedding area on that mock scrape I made." And uh, it was just like I said, probably late October, and then especially once November came, came it was just an uh, incredible amount of activity at that at that camera. Hmm. For the construction of that mock scrape, go through kind of your process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's a it's a double licking branch scrape. Um, I actually in the summer I didn't even paw the ground or anything, uh, but I I usually anymore hang multiple licking branches. A uh, couple reasons I think uh, when you have multiple branches uh, creates more of a visual attraction, um, especially from a distance. If you you know say like some people just use one strand of rope, well. You know, a deer passes by 50, 60, 70 yards away. Uh, a lot of times they're not even going to see that, but they see two or three licking branches hanging, and I like to use uh, here, I don't know what it's like, you know, where you're from or where some of your listeners are from, but we have a lot of beach, and uh, beach will, you can cut like, uh, say, in April or May, you'll see beach branches with last year's leaves still on them, and some of them will still be, holding you know right through the summer so the it's just a really good visual attraction when you you know when rather than have one little tiny skinny twig hanging there you have multiple licking branches with leaves deer kind of just especially as they're going through their areas they're seeking out uh scrapes and licking branches of other deers or other deer making and it's definitely not all with their noses. A lot of it's with their eyes. And uh, I felt that it, you know, I, you know, it seemed to be have a good visual attraction. Uh, it was a trail going through, kind of on the outskirts of of a typical doe bedding area. Um, and like I said, I I actually don't use scent, uh, but also this was a spot that uh, it just seemed like once the deer found it. They, they stayed on it all summer, not so much bucks. I actually didn't even have a good buck hit that scrape until later in the fall, but uh, those does, they loved the spot. Um, they interacted with each other all summer, and then uh, especially once the bucks started to show up, and I think the bucks and does started to communicate with each other, like, okay, it's going to be time to breed here soon. It just, I think the scrape was just in a super key spot where uh, – you know, all the deer in that particular area were were kind of, you know, intermingling with each other. And for the licking branches, the, that beach branch, do you try and make your, you know, each individual branch that you're hanging down kind of like almost like a cutoff, you know, like finger or thumb size diameter branch that has the look of something that's just old worn and, you know, chewed down mm-hmm. over time? Or do you prefer like a spider web of, you know, thin limbs hanging down? Um, usually I like, you know, something close to like as big around as, as, a you know, my finger or man's, you know, man, not, not like pencil type thin, because especially if you're going to leave those scrapes go for a long time, they're going to take a beating and a little skinny twig, you know, it's going to break. And that's just another key though, no matter what about, 
using multiple licking branches is it's not just the attraction, but if you have just one licking branch and that falls to the ground, most of the time that scrape's going to shut down because all the activity is pretty much at the branch. So if they do somehow break one or pull one down and you have, you know, one, two, or three others hanging there, that scrape will stay active. Um, but a thicker branch, like I said, at least the size of as thick as your finger, if that's a good example, or, you know, not something like baseball bat type thickness, obviously, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, something pretty good and stout. Uh, I don't like to have a ton of leaves, though, because what can happen is if you have too much leaf action, it's gonna you're going to have a ton of false triggers on your cameras. So, you know, I just like to ha- leave a few leaves hanging on some of the branches. Just it makes makes a little more attractive, and you'll see many times that uh, when a deer does go to the branch, instead of licking or nibbling or, or putting scent on the actual wood of the branch, most of the time the first thing they'll do is, is go right to that leaf. So the leaf uh, is definitely more attraction than anything else. And uh, uh, like I said, um, it's, it's just hard to find certain branches that will hold their leaves for a long time. Like you can cut down a lot of different other types of tree branches in this time of year and other times of year. And after a week, they're all dried up and disintegrated or they fall off. But uh, beech and even oak, uh, they tend to be, you know, much more durable and, and they, they definitely hold their leaves, you know, for a long time after you cut them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't ever really think about the leaf aspect of it. I know yep. for... Um, the place that that I hunt, it's very common for us to get either. Well, I think a lot of times I see, I see maple in a certain area, um, mm-hmm. but it's also usually not just like the finger sized branch. It might be like maybe it's finger sized where it's like broken off, but then you have just like that whole you know finger end of the the branch just kind of dangling. Yeah. But a lot of times it. And, and maybe it's just because they lose their leaves earlier. It might just be, you know, the wood itself and not actually the, with any leaves on it. But I think in some of yep. those instances, the visual aspect comes from the fact that there's, you know, 10, 15 little, uh, little twigs hanging down like a witch's claw. And that's pretty easy to pick up on even when you're just walking through the woods without leaves on it. So I wonder if that, yep. you know, either, in either scenario, there's some kind of a visual attractiveness to that. Absolutely. Yep. Like I said, uh, if you if you look from a distance, you'll be able to notice a branch or licking branches hanging down with leaves versus versus you know just no leaves. Like uh, it creates a much more better visual. And uh, you know another thing that I've related it to is especially because I know a lot of people are fishing this time of year. Like. Pretty much any, almost any type of licking branch is going to work, but it's just like fishing. Um, you can run certain baits at certain times of the year, and I know you're a fisherman as well. Like, there's things out there that are going to catch more fish, and it's the same with deer. There's things that you can do, and especially with licking branches, that are going to create more interaction and have more success with mock scrapes, uh, especially if if you make them you know more attractive and and so forth so uh you it's almost just like putting a little bit uh extra you know seasoning on the steak or however you want to call it even though i'm not using scent but you can definitely make uh your mock scrapes 
more and more attractive, and I'm honestly trying things all the time. Uh, that's just what I've learned over the years. It seems like the more you do to some of these scrapes, the better they actually get. Hmm. Yeah. One one thing I tried last year, and, and some of my mouse scrapes, mock scrapes haven't done that well. In fact, when I first started trying to make them, there was I remember one instance in where I made this, what I thought was a beautiful mock scrape, and, uh, you know, very visual. They could have, you know, seen it from, you know, 25, 30 yards off, good travel corridor, and just wasn't mm-hmm. getting a ton of deer on. I was getting some. And then I walked yep. in there, you know, and since I put the mock scrape up, there's a trail about, I don't know, 15 yards, like just off camera, that they reopened mm-hmm. up their previous scrapes from the year before, and they were preferentially going to their scrapes versus the one that I had created. Uh, <laughs> So then I, I moved the camera, you know, 90 degrees and started getting a bunch of pictures. But then there was another one that actually did work pretty well where I had, it was actually in a clear cut. It was an older clear cut, one that was pretty easy to walk through. So it didn't quite have enough of the, it had some of like the ferns and whatnot, but it was getting to the age where it's getting close to where they can't really feed on the, the yep. aspen leaves anymore. A lot of our clear cuts will yep. grow up and there'll be, there'll be aspen that um, is the first main tree type to take over. And, um, sure. I took a, just an aspen branch that uh, was kind of almost like dry rotted, like it was just dead, um, kind of like a vine, but a branch, and yep. broke it off to where it was like, you know, finger sized on the end and took a little piece of paracord and just hung it from like 12 feet up so that the bottom was, you know, maybe close to chest height and right yeah. along a trail next to where there was a big rub the year prior, but no scrape pre-existing there. And that one actually did really well. That one, I, I was getting does and fawns nearly every day, even throughout the the early fall. And then in October, it, it ended yep. up having a couple of pretty nice bucks come in and hit it. There you go. And and I wouldn't be surprised if that uh, scrape, you know, it's one thing about it, you find a good spot like that, and that scrape can stay good year, you know, year after year. So a lot of times it's just the location too. Yep. Yeah, that. I feel like location is huge. And you mentioned on the one that you had created was just downwind of a, a doe bedding area, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And like I said, I intentionally made that for, for a rut scenario. Uh, I've said it before many times, if people know me, uh, there's no such thing as making a mock scrape too early. And I found the sooner you make a mock scrape, whether, you know, it could be in, you know, February, March, or April when you're, you know, postseason scouting or could be out there spring gobbler hunting and, you know, you find a spot. Like, this is a great time of year to to do that because the more time you give that scrape, the more deer throughout time are going to find that, become comfortable with it, and then they will also, it'll be a reoccurring visitation. Uh, You know, they'll, when they come through that area, a lot of times they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go work that scrape versus, you know, they they might come through that area and not know your scrapes there. So the sooner you get them out there, the more success you're going to have with them. Okay. And so for the attractive power that scrapes have in terms of getting deer in front of cameras, would you say most of your cameras are either on scrapes or mock scrapes or maybe just slightly downwind of them? Yep. I would say 80 to 90% of my cameras are on scrapes. Um, and just truthfully, like the way I look at it is, uh, if you're if from a, I guess from a camera standpoint, um, it's a great way to get the deer to pause in front of your camera, especially if it's a buck, because 
you know, you, rather than just getting one photo, most of the time you're going to get several. You're going to get different angles of the buck um, and really get to know the bucks that you're hunting. And then, you know, secondly, too, is it's just a way to, uh, once again, uh, I, I think I said it, you know, in the prior podcast, but, you know, you can't bait here, not say that I would or whatever. I'm not going to even talk, go too much on that topic. But my point is, like, it's almost like baiting because you're bringing deer into a certain spot, and it's it's totally legal and ethical. So um, basically, at almost every stand I hunt, um, I'll have a mock scrape there. Not saying every deer that comes by will hit that mock scrape, but it definitely gives the deer you're hunting a good reason you know, to come right to your stand location, especially if you're a bow hunter and you're trying to get, you know, something within, you know, 20 or 30 yards. Uh, it's just another added reason, you know, and a, you know, benefit to getting deer within bow range, especially. Yeah. I've come to really love them myself. Uh, some yep. of the, some of the best ones that I've had and found there's one scrape line, for instance, that's on the downwind side of a doe bedding area, but it's also right next to a swamp that some swamps deer use quite a bit, but some that seems like they don't, they just walk the edge for whatever reason. I don't know if it's just, like, mm-hmm. if it's just too silty, they sink down too deep or whatever the case is, but just a thin little travel corridor, maybe 20 yards wide between the downwind side of the doe bedding and the swamp. And it's, you got a scrape line right along that corridor. As long as you sit right next to the swamp, generally your thermals and wind kind of drift out toward the direction of the swamp. And it's like, you yep. can, you can sit on that scrape line and the right, two three day window and have five or six different bucks come through on a single set yep yep no they can you know and once again that's a a spot that you're probably talking year after year you can count on so uh it's just it's it's great to be able to have something every year i'm not saying you know you can kill a, a, a mature buck at every scrape every year I mean, probably a lot of them you can if, if you get lucky and hit it just right. But no matter what, most of your scrapes, uh, you know, your good primary active scrapes get hit year after year. And there are spots, you know, you, you keep in mind and you, you check, you know, season after season. Yeah. And in terms of scrapes and different kinds of scrapes, I'm sure you, you're obviously a master at being able to tell which scrapes are not worth putting time into and which ones are. And for mm-hmm. the general listener, they're probably familiar with the concept of primary scrapes. But even apart from just like general scrapes and, you know, your best of the best primary scrapes, are there other categories yep. of scrapes? Like I know I've heard Bill Thompson talk about, you know, I can't remember what the term was, but scrapes that only bucks will use kind of in like a, you know, competitive nature that does don't really hit. Do you ever see anything like that? Yep, I have. And I think just a lot of it, though, is like the location of the scrape. Um, some people try to define a scrape by the size that actually i mean that means nothing at all uh it, you know all scrapes are going to have a licking branch so the the only way you can de- really determine you know a scrape um especially without a trail camera is you would al- you almost have to know you know the deer in your area very specifically and precisely like where your does are hanging where your bucks are hanging um like there's certain times of the year when you have a good amount of separation between bucks and does um and that's when you'll find you know scrapes getting hit by mainly just does and scrapes you know pretty much by only bucks because there's you know they're separating themselves from each other uh but you'll also you know like this time of year especially 
you'll have bachelor groups of bucks in their own bedding areas. You'll have does in their own bedding areas. And, you know, that's when you'll see that that situation happen is, you know, d- does mainly on at this spot, bucks mainly at this spot. Um, but then during the rut, it can be the complete opposite. And it really often is like that's a time of year when they're, you know, looking for each other. So you're going to, you're not going to see that scenario play out as much, you know, throughout, you know, the different parts of the fall and, you know, I guess just different times of the year in general, but it, it's all based on where the scrape is located. Yeah. And yeah, we've been talking a lot about the licking branch too, and, and sort of the power there. And one thing I really want to stress to the listeners too, is that, I mean, that that's a really powerful thing. And there was a point in time where I like a, probably a lot of hunters think of scrape as being synonymous with the part that's on the ground, not necessarily the licking branch that's over yep. the top. And, yep. you know, since I've really come to learn the importance of the licking branch and the biology behind, you know, why, why deer use that, I've been able to, you know, scout and find scrapes when there's snow on the ground, find scrapes when, you know, it's the summer and everything is, is all grown up just because I'm able to, you get into those areas and it's like, ah, oh man, there's, there's gotta be a scrape in here. It just looks right. Like maybe you're walking through a high stem con area and it just kind of opens up and it's like just this perfect little pocket or corridor and sure enough, there's a licking branch that you can see. Um, so I, I found um, that to be very helpful from a, a scouting perspective, just using that as a visual tool, just like the deer one, I'm sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one thing uh, that I feel a lot of hunters make a mistake on, but it sounds like you're, you know, you're you're doing it just right, is most people are looking for that ground to be torn up. And you actually want to focus on the opposite because I've found a lot of really good spots over the years where the lick and branch is just, or the, say like, you know, you'll have a limb and throughout time they've busted down like, every every possible branch that comes off a limb um but that's kind of what i seek out for is those scrapes that over the years they shut off because they couldn't they couldn't make a lick you know they couldn't break the branch and have it hang vertically vertically um there was just nothing left so that's the perfect spot to you know to hang a branch and if you're really looking for things like that because like I said, almost all scrapes throughout time will shut down because they've beat up the branch so much that uh, there won't be any bit of a licking branch left. You'll have that main branch that's probably eight, nine feet or at least six, seven feet up in the air, but no other side branches, you know, shoots coming off of it because they've they've ripped them all down. So really being on the lookout for those kind of things, for the licking branch and not so much the the ground being all torn up because and there's really just a a smaller period of the year when that ground is getting worked anyways you know but basically from late august early september till you know some time throughout the winter is the only time they're really pawing up the ground much uh spring and summer uh that's not going to be visible at all this time of year so you've really got to keep your eyes out for those licking branches yeah, when I've even in the summer made mock scrapes and put a big focus on trying to paw out the ground. Yep, and it's just not like by the time the fall rolls around, it's like you could hardly even tell I did that work, and the deer weren't keeping it open. But yep. on, the, on the flip side, especially like even around the time frame around here of like November one to even like October thirty first, 
I'd have some bucks come in and, uh, you know, they'd pile up the scrape maybe on like the 28th or 29th. And then the next three days, there might be 10 different bucks that go through and hit that scrape, but maybe only one of them cares to pile the ground. So you go a couple of days where it's like, yep. you can't even see the scrape anymore on the ground because it's covered with leaves, but there's still bucks exactly. hitting it multiple times a day. They're just going up and like, I've seen some that just basically walk right next to the scrape and I'm sure they're still able to smell it. And some will go right into it and dig their head in and, and, you know, rub exactly. their head around in it, but they just, you know, for whatever reason, they yep. may or may not actually pile the ground. Yep. And, and that's a really good point to bring up is there's, there's a certain time of year, you know, it's different where you're from, but like when the leaves are coming down super heavily and I've learned this, especially through trail cameras, like I'll go to pull a card and I look and be like, Oh, you know, scrape hasn't been hit. It's covered with leaves. And literally within the past three days, you know, it has a ton of buck activity, but you know, you get a good, good, swath of wind overnight and it doesn't take a whole lot to fill up the scrape with leaves so uh that's you know once again it's you really can't focus on what you're seeing on the ground you got to really keep a good eye out just for those licking branches themselves uh it's they're pretty easy to recognize once you get a feel for it you know most of the time you're going to see that branch just hanging by a certain amount of thread snapped you know bent vertically and uh that's exactly what you got to keep your eyes out for, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then talking a little bit about the shift, you know, that we've been saying as we get closer to like the pre-rot and I know yep. some of your deer obviously been killed like mid October too. Do, mm-hmm. do you see just one primary shift going from summer to fall or do you kind of see almost two shifts? One from like bachelor group summer to like early fall tight core area and then like a second shift closer to doe bedding groups in the late pre-rut? Yep, I I mostly see a double shift. Um, not all bucks do it though. Some bucks will wait uh, until just closer to the rut and then shift. But I'd say the majority of our bucks, uh, especially, it doesn't matter the age class, you'll see, you'll see a shift anywhere from late August to early October they'll, you know, then they'll settle down roughly for a couple weeks, maybe three weeks. Then you'll see that next shift again. Um, and that's what I call the rut shift where they will start, you know, basically what it is, in my opinion, is they're scouting does. It's almost like as if we were hunting does or, you know, I'm kind of doing actually the same thing as them, to be honest. That's a time of year when, you know, I'm really starting to focus and pattern my does. And that's exactly what the what the bucks are doing they uh they're just trying to get a feel for where all the girls are at and uh just really just waiting anxiously every day uh until the first one comes in heat and that's actually a really good time of year to be in the woods and it's often overlooked in my opinion would you say that typically ends up being like i don't know october 15th through like the 25th or you know somewhere in that that range i i'd say you're just about dead on i mean it's not one of those things that, like, I see every year, October 15th, it's like a light switch. I, I've seen it vary within a few days every year, but that's a really good marker to say about October 15th. Um, and it will roughly last, it's probably, it's not, I don't really see it, uh, you know, maybe a week at the most, but often, honestly, and just 
about a four or five day stretch, it seems like the mature, majority of bucks have went from those real tight core bedding areas to bouncing around more, patterning, and you know searching for does. So roughly, I would say the most of it is October fifteenth to twentieth. I would say. Okay, yeah, and that one buck that I was showing you pictures of the the one that was on the older side, he mm-hmm. on October sixteenth last year made what I can only describe as, you know, somewhat of a, you know, pre-rut excursion where he hit like three of my trail cameras that were all like, you know, two to 400 yards apart and he hit them all in sequence, you know, so like a, I don't know, he probably covered like a hundred acre area all in like early afternoon, like three to three to five in the afternoon. And from that point in time up through like, say the 29th or 30th, he was daylighting a lot, not on all those cameras, but like, you know, the close, closer to his core area cameras where he was very yep. killable and it probably you know should have killed him in reality um yep. so i'm hoping he does the same thing this year because i think he'll be pretty vulnerable if he maintains that same pattern but sure that was like a really good example of a, of where like i didn't really know what that deer was doing prior to that point in time but as soon as he made that one you know bigger trip then it was like it was pretty easy to start getting a, a pattern for what he was doing through over the next two weeks Yep, and you'll you'll find that certain bucks, like I've always said, you know, not every buck is extremely killable at a certain time of year. And I know everyone's probably, or most people think that, okay, during the rut is probably when, you know, bucks are most killable. But some bucks are just, they're much easier to pattern in the early season. Some bucks are late season. But throughout the years, you know, when you start to gain history with a buck and, and you really record and pay attention, you know, to to what you're learning about him and what he's doing, you'll find that, man, there's certain times a year when I really should be pursuing certain individual bucks because they're kind of doing the same things roughly at the same time every year. Uh, but there's those certain small windows where it might be early November, late October, even gun season when it's like this buck's really got a pattern at this time, and that's that's the times when you really need to take advantage of those opportunities. Do you ever see bucks that are very patternable and killable in the big woods in like, let's say mid to late September, if your season were to open that early? Oh my God, absolutely. Like I've had many, many heartbreaks of really big mature deer throughout mid to late September. And then I'm talking like, cause our, our archery season usually starts the first Saturday, October. I can count on two hands how many deer, Pope and Young, or better that I thought I was going to kill come opening day archery, you know, just just a week prior to that, and then something completely changing once October hits. So even in September, and especially closer to that mid-September range, at least up here, you know, I can't speak for any other areas, but these bucks are very, very patternable in September. Once October comes, it's completely different till you get, you know, probably after that October 15th period. And are those deer usually at that point in time still in kind of their summer patterns, or have they by this point in time switched to like their, you know, first shift to where they're kind of broken up, but they're still killable? Um, It seems to be both ways. Like, but the biggest key is that is daylight activity. Like, I don't see a lot of bucks get super nocturnal till late September, early October. Um, 
but I'll see it. Like I said, I'll have some bucks shift late September as soon as they shed their velvet, but they'll still be super daylight active till you know at least mid September. Sometimes even later than that, and then you get excited because you're like, okay, I'm on a shift, and I've I've figured out what he's doing, and then you know, boom, he goes nocturnal three days before October arrives. So it can get frustrating, and I can't tell you how many times that's happened. But uh, anymore, I don't get my hopes up until uh, till the actual season starts. Okay. Well, I mean, it's good news for me because my season usually opens up mid-September. <laughs> Absolutely. I. You know, not bragging at all, but I, I'm i really confident and honestly, I feel if our season was a week or two sooner, I probably would have, you know, three or four definite Pope and Young, maybe even close to Boone and Crockett deer that I probably would have killed earlier in September just because based on what I was seeing on trail cameras, like just super patternable. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've, struggled with in the bigger woods in the past is finding some of those bucks like those bigger bucks early i know they'll show up in late october yep. but like i was telling you in the last podcast a lot of times when i've been trying to find find them earlier in the summer i've been more focusing on the food areas and maybe i find them maybe i don't maybe i should get a you know once every two weeks type of photo but then they end up showing up anyway where i can kill them in, yep. in that pre-rut time frame but you know one of the better spots I ended up finding last year that was super hot during that rut time frame. I actually found it late September when I was just doing a boots on the ground scouting trip. And at this point in time, it was like that, you know, middle age clear cut, like one of the good ones we were talking about in the last episode size wise. And there was yep. already rubs on some of the saplings in that clear cut. And the, you know, at that point in time it was late September, which indicated yep. to me that, you know, likely those bucks weren't, four miles away hitting an ag source in the early season they might have you know either maybe they were doing that but then they've recently relocated to where they were maybe killable early season or they were just living there you know throughout the early season and maybe even late summer so i'm gonna you know have some more cameras in that area in particular in areas like it in the cases that you know some of those you know clear cuts might be getting used earlier than i would have anticipated in years prior yeah absolutely and uh what I've found, and even that time of year, is like, even though we don't have ag, but I could use, you know, acorns as an example. Like, you'll, you may have, uh, you know, a mile away a really good section of oaks that those bucks are still hitting, but they're not going to probably go to that food source until night. But the thing about clear cuts is, and even bedding areas in general is, most of the time in a batting area you're going to have a food source and that's what makes clear cut so perfect is uh those deer are still able to feed throughout the day um and especially that time of year when food is is very important you know to build up for the rut um so they want to have at least a secondary food source in their bedroom and that could be the same with having a clear cut a mile away from an ag source you might think well you know the bucks that are hitting this these farm crops or you know whatever it is uh got to be bedding real close well if you have a really good prime superb clear cut you know within a mile or maybe around a mile of that food source there's a good chance that that's exactly where those bucks are hanging and trust me they will go a mile or more to and from 
uh, you know, feeding, especially at night, that that is not uncommon at all, especially for a mature buck. Okay. Yeah, and I know I've heard guys who hunt hill country a lot, they'll talk, but they might not have the clear cuts or the ag. They might talk about bucks bedding in an area where there's like green briar or something like that that they can feed on. Yep. Or maybe buckthorn yep. or, or just, you know, briars in general, uh, which I guess usually yep. is, is combined with some type of a clear cut activity or, or storm damage or something of that nature. But, uh, yep. yeah, I, I definitely, I've seen that too, that most of the clear cuts that I have seen a lot of good action on are, like we talked about last episode too, big enough that you can walk through them, but they're still there's still a lot of low lying forbs and food and ferns and briars. And I mean, it's tough to walk through them if you got, you know, soft pants because yeah. you, you just, you tear them up. But that <laughs> means there's a lot of food obviously for those deer. Yep, definitely. No, that's why, that's why they're just the perfect place for a, a deer to live, especially a mature one is it's all the food they can eat and all the cover they could ask for. So, uh, Nobody hardly ever goes in there because, like I said, you're probably going to need stitches by the time you get through it. So uh, it's just it's the perfect scenario for that. Yeah, I would say usually just based on some of my observations and some of my cameras, you're more likely to get grouse hunters back in those areas. It seems like during bow season than you are gun or uh, bow hunters, and then gun yep. season. It seems like for whatever reason, like there's enough people around overall that guys will still hit those clear cuts in gun season. Uh, but they're also a lot easier to walk through that time of year. But yep. uh, oh, definitely. What are some of your preferred, like, you, you, let's say you know a buck's living in a clear cut. Maybe you have an idea of where, maybe not. You just know that you get pictures on the edges or whatever. What are some of your favorite ways to hunt a buck that's using a particular clear cut? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what I really like to do is... <laughs> If I've went in there in the postseason and knowing exactly where those beds are is extremely important because uh, you you want to have a good pretty good idea. I mean, I'm not going to say that uh, you're going to be able to locate every possible bedding location, but if if you know where a good chance for the deer is actually bedding, then you can possibly move in. I prefer to get in. It's just a lot of them are really hard to get into without making noise. Or, uh, you know, you might have to trim a ton of shooting lanes. There's, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of variables that, that kind of make it tough to get inside of, of hunting clear cuts. But if you can get in, you're always better, in my opinion, inside because you will find way more activity inside than you will outside. They're in the clear cut because they want to be in it. They, they're not uh they're not living on the edges a whole lot for you know if, if that's if that's what uh what some people think um yeah edges can still be pretty good spots but uh those deer want to be inside those clear cuts and if you can find a way to get in uh number 1 know where the bedding is and then adjust to that um if you can cut the distance or even sometimes finding trails that or heading out but still getting 30, 40, 50 yards inside of the cut on a trail heading out, um, you'll have way better success doing that versus hunting the edge. Um, I might have brought this up on the last podcast, but, you know, I'll bring it up just in case. I've learned this more so, you know, through running trail cameras is you'll, 
just amazing how, like, literally 5, 10, 15 minutes after dark, a mature buck shows up on camera on the outside edge. But you know if, if you were only in there probably 50 yards, you would have been able to catch him in the daylight. I think it's almost like that last 100-yard stretch or maybe even less is almost like a staging situation where they will uh, they might even move from their primary bed and then work their way closer to the edge and then maybe even lay down for a little bit until it gets good and dark and then they come out. So the biggest the biggest key like I said is is trying to to get to some of these deer during the daylight. You don't see that a lot during the rut. You the rut you can find, you know, really good action on the edges, but any time other than the rut, it seems like you're better to be inside the cup for daytime activity. Okay, and I remember you talking last time that a lot of your clear cuts are not necessarily totally, you know, flat bulldozed areas. A lot of times they're select cuts. So are you, if you're yep. trying to get it in the interior, you're usually climbing up a tree, or do you hunt on the ground sometimes? How do you play that? Um, I'll, you know, it all depends on the cut. And the tricky thing about clear cuts is, is especially, um, you know, people think of it as like, really thick well if if it's a young clear cut the problem is is it's hard to find a tree with good enough cover like they will you know they'll leave even in the select cut a lot of trees still standing but you tend to stick out like a sore thumb or you're you might climb up in that tree and then the deer could even see you from a long long ways uh, especially if it's like you know the cover that they're laying in it's only two or three feet high they can still see out, you know, trees within 100 or 200 yards of them. So in, in that situation, you know, you're almost better being on the ground. Anytime that uh, if if the tree doesn't tend to have much cover and I'm hunting a fairly young cut that I feel like deer uh, would be able to look up and see me in a tree, I think you're better off hunting on the ground. I know a lot of hunters uh, don't like hunting on the ground, although I think it's getting more and more popular but uh you uh you can't take any chances inside some of these clear cuts because uh you also don't you don't want to educate the especially most likely you're hunting a mature buck you don't want to educate him at all so um in a lot of cases i just think you're better hunting off the ground honestly okay yeah i've grown to like it quite a bit as well for yep. a similar reason, in a lot of cases, it's like, well, I could hunt in that tree, but, like, I'm so skylit, or maybe yep. the tree's not even that big in diameter. It's, even if they can't see me, they're going to see me shift my weight, and then the whole tree canopy is going to shake a little bit if it's calm. And exactly. so, on the ground, I've found that, you know, if I'm sitting right on the edge, like, let's say the deer are moving on a trail, or they're on the edge, or whatever, and I'm also on the edge of the clear cut, yep. most likely, like, I'm at a much higher risk of getting picked off. But if I sit back like one to three rows of trees, almost where I have like a jail cell of saplings around me, exactly. then I can still pick my shooting lanes, but I'm much, much less likely to get detected sitting back just a little bit, especially if I've got, you know, knee-high ferns and grass. And I can even, I don't even have to sit on the ground. I can bring a little stool and, you know, be at a nice, comfortable height to be able to shoot yep. over some of that stuff. And I've had plenty of deer last year that came in, you know, within – 15 yards and never knew I was there and didn't really even seem to care about my ground scent too much either, which was interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Um, yeah, in, in a clear cut, you have to be, like, super patient and really just use your ears more than your eyes. Um, clear cuts are noisy even when deer are using them just because there's so much brush, uh, there's a lot of sticks, and it's just that's what I, I think I brought up earlier on the prior podcast even. That's one of the biggest challenges is making noise in them. But if you can get in uh, and then let things quiet down, most of the time I can hear deer coming well before I see them. In fact, I can remember one instance where I almost got a shot at a, at a really big deer, um, but I could I could just hear them coming from, you know, i not exactly sure how far away, but, you know, probably at least the first 50 yards until he got within sight, and uh, unfortunately uh, he saw me draw back. But um, it, was, it was me hearing him uh, was the biggest key, like, you, there's a lot of you know a lot of different sounds of animal movement in the woods, and I know some people have trouble distinguishing like a squirrel rustling through the leaves versus a deer. But uh, when I hear like twigs snapping, and you almost there's almost like a pace to it. I assume it's either a deer or a bear, and most of the time it's a deer. And you know I was able to get ready, and uh, I just it was all my fault. I drew back at, at the wrong time, and he caught me. But um, it's just one of those situations where uh, it's not like you're watching from a long distance. Sometimes uh, your visibility might only be 20, 30 yards at the most, but uh, it's a very high percentage area to catch a mature buck, especially during the daytime. And uh, if you're super patient and you do it right, I, I do think hunting on the ground can be, can be really successful inside clear cuts. Yeah, you mentioned the noise aspect, and I still remember one of the encounters I had with that older buck last year. He was, it was like right on the, like you were saying, you know, kind of the mid-October before they really started daylighting a lot in the rut, right on yep. just the edge of shooting light. And it ended up, by the time he got past me finally, it was a few minutes past shooting light. But yep. you could hear him in that clear cut, like just aggressively stepping, every hoof step hitting the ground, you could hear it, <laughs> and you could hear him start raking trees and, you know, yep. he was just, you could tell he was just in an aggressive mood. And then by the time he finally got out to the edge where I was at, I could just see the, you know, dark shape moving along the edge. And, you know, I obviously yep. couldn't, couldn't shoot. But, uh, yeah, that was a really cool experience just to be able to, to hear that deer out there and know exactly, like, that's not a small buck, that's not a doe back in there. Like, there's only <laughs> one thing that could be. Yep. It's, it's very exciting. And, uh, you know, once again, like, because you're, you're most likely, you're hunting a very small window of, of visibility, so you really have to rely on your ears. You can't wait till you see that buck to grab your bow or to get situated. you got to start, like, positioning yourself. Um, okay, where does it sound like he's going to come from? Because once he does come into that little opening you have, that's where, you know, even I got caught. I should have drew back sooner, but as soon as he popped out into the opening, I drew back and, you know, it was too late. But, you know, preparing for that and using your ears versus using your ears more versus using your eyes is, is super uh, important, you know, in that in that situation. Yeah. And where I screwed up last year on the hunt that I should have killed that buck, I was facing the clear cut and figured I knew where he was betting in there and I don't know I still don't know exactly what happened on this particular day and why the buck did what he did but 
I had got tired of sitting on the ground. My butt was just like numb. So I stood up just for like, you know, 10 minutes or whatever to let the blood flow start to come back. <laughs> sitting next to a log with a, you know, tree up against my back I was leaning against. So I had minimal cover, but there was some cover and saplings all around. And as I was standing up, my bow was laying on the ground. I could just start hearing footsteps behind me. <laughs> so I just, I freeze and then out of the corner of my eye, I could see that deer walking right past me. <laughs> wow. Just like... He's doing the, the exact opposite direction is what I thought he was going to do. I thought he was going to come from the clear cut. He ended up going into the clear cut. I still don't know exactly what what happened there. Huh. Um, and I, I think now that he probably wasn't bedded exactly where I thought he was bedded because he ended up yep. going past one of my trail cameras in the exact same manner that he had gone past, by in the past. And I always assumed that he was coming from a different direction and going past that camera that way. And then I was like, yep. oh, I guess he could have been doing that every time. I just didn't realize it, and the way I set up was, you know, not ideal. Um, but, yeah, the, the uh, trying to hunt from a tree in that scenario would not work at all because the shooting lanes are just non-existent. You get exactly. 10, 15 feet off the ground, and all you've got is just a giant mess of clear-cut branches, and you can never get an arrow through. Yep, and even just finding the right tree and... You know, because I cut so many down, obviously, you know, you're just so limited that, uh, you know, that's in, in, I, and I, but one thing I don't want people to misunderstand is you can still, you know, have a lot of success on the, on the edges, but I don't tend to see that activity until, you know, closer to the rut, so, or throughout the rut. But, um, that's, if it was, if it was before the rut, other than, you know, maybe hunting on a cold front, I'd prefer to hunt inside of the cut. Um, outside of the rut, though, I'd probably hunt on the edges. So uh, I just didn't want people to to think that, you know, it's just kind of a, a one-way strategy. I think it's just, for me, it's been based on time of the year. Okay. One more clear-cut question, and then we can talk about weather. Nope. Do you ever, when you're hunting the interiors of the clear-cut, do you ever try and do, like, a still hunt or try and set up and do like a calling sequence in the interior or are you pretty much always setting up in an ambush um i have especially throughout the rut um bounced around if it, it has to it depends on on the clear cut like some of them uh will have like a lot of different old logging paths going through them and uh, those can be great for like slip sneaking through and calling and moving around um if it's you know if it's just your typical really thick nasty clear cut it's it's going to be difficult to be bouncing around through there, uh, calling and trying to you know get in a decent setup and you know hunting aggressive that way. Um, I think if you if you want to uh, you know especially during the rut, if you want to use that tactic, it probably it's it's best time of year. I think during the rut, uh, you know, working the edges of the cut and calling inside, I think can be really really good. Um, I've had some luck doing that. I can't say I've ever, uh, I've, I don't know if I've ever killed one doing that, but I've had a lot of close calls. Um, and I think one of the biggest keys is, you know, they not only do they hear your calling, but they're probably hearing your movements, which uh, as when you mix uh, the sound of, you know, footsteps, breaking branches and things like that, along with especially grunting, I think that can really entice the mature buck to come out and take a look when, you know, you, you throw all those all those sounds in, into one scenario. Sometimes it's almost like it's like turkey hunting. The, 
the right series of calls or maybe scratching the leaves just a little bit extra and a little more realism sometimes is what can can really make the difference and i think that that actually is a great tactic um uh probably in my opinion more in the rut than anything else is when i would you know be more of a ground aggressive type approach okay yeah that makes a lot of sense too i mean you you think about when you hear deer in the clear cut what you don't usually hear grunting or rattling as much as you would hear the footsteps going through and maybe raking his antlers on some of the branches yep all right so then to shift gears a little bit you, you touched on this just a little bit in terms of like you know, cold front earlier in the pre-rut time frame, but when it comes to things like weather patterns, when it comes to, I guess, hierarchy of what makes deer move that you've seen, especially mature bucks, you know, so we got time of year, weather, and moon. We'll maybe break it into those three categories. Do you see that, uh, you know, for the most part, timing of the rut will pretty much trump everything, or do you find that either weather and or moon plays a really big factor in, like, when you might choose to hunt? Um, for when I choose to hunt, absolutely. Like, uh, I'm not someone, you know, except maybe when guiding starts, obviously I'm, I'm in the woods almost every day throughout the rut, just literally, cause I don't have a choice. It's my job, but, um, I, I don't, you know, even though I have the desire to hunt every day, like, you know, when you have a family, you have jobs, uh, I, I try to pick the prime days you know, especially before guiding when I should hunt and when I should be at home, either mowing the lawn or doing chores. Like, uh, I feel like uh, outside of the rut, once again, uh, weather, especially weather for me, uh, plays a huge toll on, you know, how active deer are. I'm a big, big fan of hunting, you know, cold fronts, especially early to mid-October cold fronts. I've killed some really good deer doing that. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, I, I'm sure you see it cause you're a Northern guy too, even though you're you know more West than me, but where I'm from, like you can have 70 to 80 degree days in early to mid October. And then it's nothing for it to drop 20, 30 degrees. You could have in a matter of in 24 hours, you could be from 70 or 80 to 50 or 40, you know, in that quick of a span. And that's kind of what I wait for every year, those those big major cold fronts early to mid-October. And I've seen a tremendous amount of mature buck movement, you know, during those days. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the wind is doing. It really doesn't matter quite what week it is, uh, whether it's the first week, second week, maybe even third week of October. If you get a really major cold front, um, you're, you gotta, you got to do whatever you can to be in the woods hunting, I can tell you that. Yeah, I've, I would say I've definitely noticed some of the same, especially as it gets later into the month. Some of the yep. earlier cold fronts, that, for whatever reason, it seems to have been hit or miss. Like sometimes it'll be good. Oh, really? And then sometimes, I'll, like I remember two years ago, one specific example where we got like mid-20s in mid-October and it snowed. And so we had like two inches of <laughs> snow on the ground and uh, it got cold and quiet and calm, really crunchy and loud. Um it felt like it was yep. late November, but, uh, the, for whatever reason, the deer didn't really move all that great during that time frame. But then, you know, as it got again, closer to later October, then, you know, the normal type of movement that you would expect kicked up. And last fall, 
it it really coincided well where we had normal temperatures, maybe even on the higher end, and then we had that big cold front come in like October 26, 27, somewhere in like that time frame. And I remember too that that coincided with um, you know switched to full range on the app, and it was kind of like just based on you know tribal deer hunting knowledge. Like again, that time where it should be like all of the stars aligning. And it was yep. like every day it was just like several bucks daylight. <laughs> like it was just exactly what you would, what you would hope for. Yep. No, I, I would, I would actually agree to that. I don't want to say that, um, a late October cold front or even you, you probably will see even better act, especially buck activity, mature buck activity. I think I do even notice, you know, better buck activity the later you get into October. But, but my point was like, uh, if it's, if it's a really big cold front, when I, when I say big, like I'm talking probably close to, or more than a, you know, 20 degree temperature drop, I still see tremendous movement. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, if I, if I know that I'm you know, have cameras, more cameras than, than sightings. But if I know that my cameras are in the right spots on certain deer, I can almost always see, like, after that cold front, those bucks daylighting like crazy, either right before it, during it, or maybe sometimes even the day after the front. Um, you'll see a ton of daylight movement just because of the cold front. And, it, like I said, it can be October 1st. It can be the 15th. Um, I've, I've had tremendous activity almost at any time in October with those cold fronts. Okay. And does moon phase or overhead or underfoot, does anything like that seem to play any kind of factor or is weather Trump all for you? Um, I, weather's probably the biggest key, but, um, last year, and this is more opinion-based, I can't say, you know, obviously I'm no biologist, or <clears throat> this is just sort of opinion and just kind of what I feel happened. Like, we we started to see, like, some really good daylight buck activity last year. I want to say it was around the 15th, 16th, maybe 17th, sort of like that. And then we had, like, <clears throat> I think it's like a rare full moon. I forget what it's called, but the the full moon we had last mid-October was just crazy big, bright. Um, I think it happens like, you know, every four years to this type of scenario. And once that moon hit, it just shut that buck, that daytime buck movement right down. Uh, it seemed to have about a seven to ten day effect on it. And this is only my theory. I could be way wrong, but um, <clears throat> what I think happened was I think it it messed with their eyes in terms of we know that uh, rut activity and rut behavior is is definitely, especially based on amount of daylight uh, light you know going through a buck's eyes and even does and deer in general. And I think that moon just being so bright. Um, Throughout the night, we had perfectly clear conditions, uh, you know, and it lasted, you know, the, the worst of it, definitely three or four days. Um, it just seemed to almost make things go in the opposite direction as far as that daytime buck movement. And hmm. I've, I just always believed that, like, all that light that they that they gathered might have pushed them pushed them the wrong way as far as running behavior because it's we know that when I said light, it's a decrease in light 
is what is what has a big effect on you know turning those hormones on and gearing them up for the rut and i've never seen anything like it uh last mid to late last october last year was the worst here i've ever seen it and i've uh i mean i've been hunting i'm 36 now and i've i've been doing it even since before i was 12 um and very seriously at least into my late teens and so you could say in close to 20 years i'd never seen anything like that happen yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean, you know, like you said, photo period definitely plays a role. I, I know I've heard, yep. I'm pretty sure it was John Eberhardt I've, I've heard talk about in instances in the rut where there was a full moon and no cloud cover, so you had basically just like really bright nights. Yep. Having very little morning and afternoon activity, but then like some midday activity that would kick up. I, I, sure, can't, I haven't seen enough happened. observations to say one way or another. I've also tried to pay somewhat of attention to when I get daylight photos and like moon overhead underfoot times, just because I know that's a, you know, it's a thing that a lot of guys swear by. I haven't, I haven't been able to find any kind of correlation with that so far, but again, I'm not dealing with, you know, thousands of data points. I'm dealing with, you know, dozens to maybe a couple hundred at this point. Yep. Um, Yeah. Sometime if you're interested, you might know, maybe you don't, but I keep uh, from October 1st to December 15th, uh, you know, out of the hundred-some trail cameras that I run, especially the past few years, been in the, like, 150-some range. Uh, every daytime buck picture I get from October 15th to December 15th, I record uh, various things like weather, wind, and, you know, stuff like that. And I try to, uh, you know, I graph it all at the end of the year, and then I look to see, like, okay, what were some of the big key factors on, you know, buck movement in certain days, you know, each season. And uh, uh, number one I've found, and like I said, I'd be willing to share it with you, is just seems like temperature has been the greatest factor and had the greatest influence on buck movement. I've been doing this for the past, probably the past four or five years, but really like charting it and being more in-depth about it like the past two or three but uh, every year it's just amazing to, to look back and uh, go through that data. And, like, I can tell you that last year was the only year, and I think the past four, that our best daytime activity was the first week in November. Usually the best daytime activity for us is somewhere in the last 10 days of October. But it was also really warm late October for us last year, so... Um, but yeah, you might be interested in showing that on your YouTube channel sometime. Yeah. Yeah. And so is it basically like maybe more accurately change from, or like reduction compared to average temperature, you know, so like what might be considered quote unquote cold for late October might be slightly different than what's considered cold and would trigger movement in November. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it, it absolutely like, if what you're saying is like say in in summertime like right now if it's in the 60s right now or 50s even i'll see better movement now not that i'm really recording the data too much but i pay attention but because of just that coolness and like the conditioning of their bodies like uh 50s and 60s and maybe even low 70s right now is cool to deer versus like if it's 60s or 70s in october that's hot for deer. 
So, and that will influence movement then. Um, so it's based on time of the year. And, and like, I think even us humans, like we get conditioned to certain temperatures at certain times of the year. I remember this year, uh, late in the winter, it got like mid to high forties one day and I was fine outside in just a t-shirt, but uh, it's, it's all conditioning. Now, if it was in the forties, I'd probably want to dress up in my snowmobile suit right now. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, but yeah, that's, that's what I see. It's all based on the conditioning of, you know, of their bodies and temperature throughout whatever time of year it is. Okay. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yep. And, um, um oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, in according, especially to my data, um, below freezing, is just has a phenomenal influence on deer movement once again uh talking more about archery hunting like if any it doesn't matter if it's october 2nd 5th whatever if you get early season any morning below freezing or even freezing uh it seems like that's like the cutoff but uh you'll see tremendous movement uh versus if it's you know 40s 50s or warmer uh, freezing temperatures, there's something about it that 32 and below, um, you'll see tremendous influences on on buck movement. Yeah, that's interesting, and and I know in talking to guys from the south, they sometimes will say that you know the super cold hurts because the deer just aren't as you know accustomed to oh true. to how to yep. operate in those cold temps, especially if you get like a little bit of snow or something. Um, yeah, but. I, I definitely noticed that, you know, same thing. It's almost like the, and you could describe that day as maybe like a crisp day where it's just a little below freezing. The, the ground's got a little bit of a crunch to it. The, the dew is frozen. You got a little frost on like the grass and it just, you can hear yep. better. And I've had very good experiences hunting in those kind of conditions as it, you know, gets closer to the rut. And when it comes to yep. late season, everybody says like, oh, the colder, the better and, and whatnot. But, and and yep. this isn't exactly, I guess, the you know the focus of talking about pre-rot and rot, but I find that here in like the northern part of the country, northern Midwest, there's not always, at least I haven't seen a super tight correlation always with how the deer are moving in at least these bigger public land environments and the temperature, almost to where like if they are driven by the temperature, it's it usually doesn't even get that cold during the hunting season. It might not be till like late January or February where you get like, you know, high temperature of negative 10 where it's like, okay, now they're, yeah. now they got to move early. But if it was like single digits or like, you know, even zero yep. or 10 degrees for a high, like it was still colder than average. Those deer were still moving nocturnally a lot of the times. Um, sure. And then it wasn't until like almost, it seemed like time period wise, like, okay, the gun season has been out for like a month now. Now they're starting to move in daylight, regardless of the temperature it might be 30 degrees and they're still moving in daylight just because they haven't been yep. pressured. Yep. Nope. That, that plays a big influence. And actually, um, uh, even though I don't really record a lot of data past December 15th, I, I still pay attention what I'm seeing throughout the winter. And I, I actually see opposite effects on cold fronts. Like, like for instance, if you have a really bad winter and then you have a brutal winter storm, um, a lot of times, uh, it's the complete opposite. Like you would think, okay, big cold front deer moving like crazy. Well, these deer are beat down from being hunted all, you know, fall. And now they're, you know, struggling to get through winter. 
you're not going to see a great amount of activity sometimes, you know, during the cold front throughout the winter versus a cold front through October, November, or even throughout the spring and summer. So um, it's always their bodies telling them, you know, what's best for them, and they're really good. They're they're not like me. Like tonight, I'll I'll look through the snack drawer, and my body's <laughs> telling me, you know, eat that bag of chips. Uh, I wish it wouldn't, but <laughs> deer seem to uh, they seem to listen a lot better than us humans on how they're supposed to take care of their bodies. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose if you, you know, in that classic scenario where you got maybe an unpressured private ag source and the deer are able to bed, you know, 60, yep. 80 yards off the food, that's probably a totally different scenario than if they're bedded yep. on some, you know, remote public swamp or hillside or something that they got to travel a mile Absolutely. to get to the ag. Absolutely. Yep. Once again, they they know exactly what to do to survive their they're amazing at what they do, to say the least. So uh, I've seen years where, you know, not not trying to go down this the topic too much, but I've seen winters where I thought, man, there's gonna we're gonna lose so many deer this winter, and then come next spring, it's like you hardly lost any. So uh, they're just amazing at surviving, definitely. Yeah. And I've also heard that it's not always how bad the winter is, but how bad the like early spring is. Like sure. how delayed yep. the winter is basically if you're still getting into March, you know, yep. late March, early April, and it's still you're getting blasted with like a big snowstorm that that could, because they're depleted yep. by that point in time and they need, you know, they're like they're exactly. ready to start eating again. Yep. Nope. That, that's a really good point. I found a lot of fresh dead deer that have either looked like they've fallen over or the coyotes probably noticed that they were weak, you know, even March and April, that's a very crucial time of year. So uh, we start to think that, oh, you know, spring's here, and now, we're, you know, the animals, they have it made when, you know, it's probably May or June until they start to rebound. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we touched on a lot of the topics that I wanted to hit on today in this episode. Great. Is there anything else that you can think of that you wanted to make sure we we talk about before the episode closes out? No, I think uh, I think it was very well rounded, especially the past the past two. Uh, like I said before, I really appreciate you having me. I've I've followed you for years, and you know, recently I finally got to meet you. So uh, honestly, just honored, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'll get to get on here again. I really enjoyed it. Awesome, and you have a bunch of good posts on Instagram that actually have a lot of good good information in them, written in the you know t- in the description of the posts themselves. And if people want to find that, it looks like the title is Shirk's Guide Service, all one word, on Instagram. Is there any place else that people could go to look for some of your content? Yep, they can also find me, uh, Shirk's Guide Service, on Facebook. And I, uh, you know, have a website, shirksguideservice.com. Um, and, and, two, I just want to bring up, uh, you know, because I know especially what you talk about is, you know, do-it-yourself um, just so people know, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, especially as a guide, um, I'm probably not your typical guide. I, I always feel like I'm more of a coach than a guide. I, I'm a huge fan of do-it-yourself hunting. Um, my own hunting, I've actually never been to an outfitter or been guided. So uh, I'm all for, you know, what you, what you talk about. And uh, not that I'm talking bad about guiding either, but I just 
just my point is, is I just want listeners to know, like, you know, I'm not some outfitter that uh, is just owns a bunch of bunch of land and you know, you know, just it, I, I know exactly where people are coming from, you know, when they listen and follow, especially what you do, because that's exactly what I am, and, and most of my clients, honestly, are, are very similar. So it's just, in my opinion. Uh, there's probably no better way to do it than, you know, do it yourself, and especially public land type hunting. Awesome. Well, and I can definitely attest to, you know, basically everything that you're, that you've talked about and all the stuff that's in your post absolutely is hundred percent applicable to, to what I've seen myself and, and what I know other people have observed in the, the woods, either in the Northeast or, or in the Midwest. Yep. So it's definitely good information. Oh, thanks a lot, bud. Uh, like I said, I, I say the same about you. I, uh, I've followed you for years and learned a lot from you as well. So I hope we can both uh, keep it flowing and sharing our, our newest tactics and what we learn as, as long as we keep on. Absolutely. Well, it was great having you on once again, Steve. And we'll talk to you later. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook. Leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.